Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is the Scottish Justice Secretary, Hamza Youssef. This is a fantastic conversation about a whole load of things, personal and political and religious. Before I come on to that, don't forget you can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. One of the small running themes over the last few months in emails from listeners has been unusual places that you've seen politicians. So keep those stories coming in. There's a brilliant one here uh, from Daniel. He says, in the late 90s, my family and I were holidaying with friends in Tuscany. We once visited the famous hill town of San Gimignano. I hope I've pronounced that right, Daniel. Uh, and indeed to anyone else, to all of you. Um, my little sister was a toddler at the time and was transported up the steep medieval streets in her buggy to the town centre. Daniel, this is brilliant, brilliantly written. He says, when we reached the top, my dad retrieved an ice cream and in his excitement forgot to set the buggy's brake. In a scene similar to The Untouchables, my sister then began to roll back down the hill we had just climbed. Cue hysterical screaming from aghast onlookers as my dad realised his mistake and sprinted in vain after my speeding sister. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. Suddenly, a red-headed gentleman leapt out of a nearby shop and rugby tackled the runaway buggy. The man was the then leader of the Labour Party, Mr Neil Kinnock. I was seven at the time and couldn't quite understand why my parents were so amazed and amused afterwards. Now, Daniel, that is a phenomenal story. That's going to take some beating, but if you can beat it, if you've ever bumped into a leader of the opposition in Tuscany, when you said Tuscany, people would have thought this is going new Labour. I guess it's not far off. Um, but if it was the late 90s, uh, Mr Kinnock would not have been leader, but maybe, maybe in the sands of time, in the mists, some uh, details have been lost. There's a phenomenal PS to this. He says, um, many years later, we happened to be parked in front of Neil and Glenn. He's at the Euro Tunnel. And my mum took my sister along personally to thank Neil for his heroics. It's incredible you got to meet him twice in two completely different locations. So Daniel, I think, has so far come up with by far the best story. But if you've seen a politician in an unusual place, particularly abroad, um, on your holidays, on your holobobs, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Of course, I have to promote these um, West End shows now, um, as I do at the start of all these shows. Um, they are selling very, very quickly. By the time you listen to this, one of them may have sold out. So um, on the 24th of May at the Garrick Theatre, I will be joined live on stage by Peter Mandelson and Saeed Avasi. On the 25th of May at the Garrick Theatre in London's glittering West End, I'll be joined by Keir Starmer and Andrea Leadsom. And on the 2nd of June at the Vaudeville Theatre in London's stylish West End, I will be joined by Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. Three phenomenal nights. Tickets are going very quick. You can get tickets for all of those at mattford.com slash live or i've put a link in the blurb or the show notes wherever you listen to this and while you're looking at that you could just leave a review i think acast allows you to do a, a star rating so leave a five star review if you wouldn't mind and the same on itunes but you can also write a review on there so um you can be far more creative and expressive um should you wish so 
Hamza Yusuf is today's guest. We talk about this um, during the interview. We recorded this this Saturday at half nine in the morning um, because that was the time that suited us both. Um, Hamza is observing Ramadan. So we talk about getting up early to do things, um, to eat and to drink, um, and what it's like to campaign. It must be, well, I don't want to, no spoilers, but oh my God, it must be so hard to, to do it anyway. I have great admiration for people who can do it. I mean, I found Lent a struggle, let alone how I would cope doing Ramadan. How I would cope as well, then having to go out and, and convince people to vote for you or, or go on TV or do podcasts, in-depth conversations about life and politics and everything in between. We talk about the hate crime bill, the Gender Recognition Act. We talk about um, Alex Salmond and, and what's happened to the SNP with that and, and everything that's going on there. And it's just a really good chat about politics and life in general. Hamza's brilliant company and talks about politics and life so well. He's really generous to people that he disagrees with. And this is just, as always, I think particularly the last two or three episodes, really, it's really made me think how much better this is than dealing with politics on social media. Now, that's something I talk about with various guests, and it's something that occurs to me a lot. Not so much doing the podcast, but more when I'm on social media, I think, oh, my God, and we talk about that, about how... Not just how vicious everyone else can be, and obviously that's not everyone, um, but also the way that one behaves on social media, what it does to you when you're on there, and the, the behaviours in yourself it brings out that perhaps you don't like. So this is just a, a really great, um, wide-ranging conversation about Scottish politics, about where the SNP, and it's just really good open discussion about where the SNP are at the moment and the conversations they're having on the doorstep and and what the... Um, what the kind of, um, you know, what, what, what the threats to the SNP are, where the parties go. It's just a really good open discussion about everything going on in Scottish politics at the moment. So I shall stop rattling on. I began um, by, it was quite, I mean, I'm not sure if I lived in Scotland, I'd, be, I'd start with such a cheeky question to the man who holds the justice brief and um, for fear I might be thrown in jail. Um, but nevertheless, I did start with a, with a slightly cheeky question. Delighted to be joined by the Scottish Justice Secretary, Humza Youssef. Humza, um, you've got a great love for an outfit that have dominated Scotland for around a decade, but are now on the slides. Um, enough about the SNP. What's it been like being a Celtic fan this season? <laughs> on the slide? We're only sitting at 50% in the polls. No, I, I thought you might start uh, with that, Matt. I mean, uh, of course, we could talk about Nottingham Forest, uh, but I, I'm not going to do that uh, to you. <laughs> It's been pretty abysmal. Uh, see, see, when I became Justice Secretary, uh, you know, the First Minister did say to me, look, you're probably going to be, probably football's probably going to come into your purview at some point. You know, there's been a bit of unacceptable behaviour in the seasons before. Um, you know, just, uh, you might just want to roll back some of the the the, the, the kind of football anecdotes. And, and I thought to myself, well, Celtic have made that a little bit easier this season. You know, I don't, <laughs> but people, I'll tell you what, um, those who vigorously oppose me often on social media uh, have been sending me plenty of messages with usually the words 55, uh, the phrases, we are the people and uh, no surrender in it. But, you know, I, I actually, I have to say, I enjoy the banter. If I was in their position, uh, I'd be giving it as much to, to high profile Celtic fans uh, as well. So begrudging them not, he says, through gritted teeth. It's been an amazing Nine years at least, where you basically want everything in sight every year, and then all of a sudden it's kind of, it feels like the, the, there's been a revolution. It feels like the Citadel has fallen. 
<laughs> Why are you torturing me? Uh, so, uh, look, uh, although those nine years were really important, this was meant to be the season. This was it. And frankly, will there ever be a better chance to get 10 in a row? I am not convinced. Uh, but, you know, honestly, fair play to Rangers. And, and I say this genuinely as a football fan, you know, they have been flying. I mean, absolutely flying. And their manager, uh, you know, if they hold on to him for, for next season, it will, you know, Celtic bouncing back is not automatic or inevitable. Uh, I suspect we will lose quite a few players over the summer. Who knows? Some might try their giddy heights of Nottingham Forest. Um, <laughs> even giddy heights of Derby County. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a tough road back for Celtic. I I quite I quite suspect because football kind of in Scotland. It's slightly different regarding like legislation. Obviously, the Celtic Rangers thing, there's nothing really like that in England. There are fierce rivalries, but none of them that have sectarian elements to it. Um, so there's the rules about what people can and can't chant in football grounds. I mean, instinctively, I think most football fans south of the border think, well, I don't know. Can I say that? I thought, well, that's probably quite a good thing. I mean, you know, I'm all for freedom of speech, but the Celtic Rangers thing can get very, very severe. Um, I mean, it, with, with the legislation about what people can and can't sing in football grounds, do you think that's? Do you ever get to? Do you ever think you could get to a position where actually you could roll that legislation back and it would have no effect? That football culture would have changed, and you wouldn't have to have something on the statute book to deal with it. I suppose a couple of things, just as a point to note. If, if you're referring to the Offensive Behaviour Football Act, that was actually repealed in the last Parliament. So, uh, in fairness, the opposition repealed it. Um, but there was never there was never a list of kind of songs you could or, or couldn't sing. To be frank with you, people like me and you, it was all pretty common sense. You know, don't engage in anti-Catholic or anti-Protestant or anti-British or anti-Irish rhetoric, and just keep it out of football. I just never, I never understood it really. Um, and it was just one of these weird ones where. To be honest, when it comes to certain football clubs, and I think Celtic Rangers fall into this, you know, one, I think, you know, if one club takes one stance, the supporters of another club just take another stance. I mean, Israel and Palestine is a great example. You know, you just, at Celtic games, you'll see Israel flags and Palestine flags. And, you know, fair play, people want to bring their geopolitical interests, but I've got a feeling they're not that clued up on, on, on the geopolitics of the Middle East affair, and it's more just a... Well, he's got an Israeli flag, so I'm bringing my Palestinian one. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I think it's got a lot better. In fairness, if I think about when I went when I was a, a boy uh, and a lot younger, I think there's a there's actually a much better almost self policing. Um, and 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 I give credit to to both Celtic and Rangers. I think you know Celtic have worked hard um, to try to work with uh, again some more. Some, some some of the some of the elements that that that, that would bring uh, what I would consider uh, really unacceptable conduct into the stadium. I think Rangers are doing the same. You know, they launched their everyone anyone campaign because I think they recognise that there was a problem uh, around uh, again whether it was anti-Catholicism or certainly some elements of racism, uh, and they've tried to address it. So so fair play to them. Things are definitely getting better for sure. And and Scotland's due to host some games for Euro twenty twenty at Hamden in. A couple of months, you know, it's going to come around quickly. Um, it looks like Wembley might get an extra game. Are those games at Hampton definitely going to go ahead? Yeah, 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 they absolutely should. I mean, touching all the wood you can here, barring any mutant strain or or or, or any any other type of uh, uh, unfortunate event that would that would uh, 
damage our progress against the virus. Uh, forget, you know, if none of that happens, then we should absolutely have fans in the stadium. But forget Hampton, you should be talking about that Wembley epic game where uh, you and I will will be on opposing sides. And uh, although you might think we don't fancy our chances, uh, we are we are going to we are going to bring the game uh, to you. And actually, uh, if nothing else, um, uh, we are going to make sure we chant you off the park, right? Whether we win or not. Actually, I was at Wembley uh, last uh, uh, England Scotland match I watched uh, was at Wembley. And it was just when um, Prince William had his first, his George, isn't it? And we had just, uh, you know, received our giant pandas from China. And the whole time, the Tartan army were chatting, we'd rather have a panda than a prince. (laughs) So for this time around, I've got to find a, I've got to find a better chant than that one. Uh, that would be okay. Yeah. That would that would not have been covered under the previous legislation. Pandas and yeah, yeah. yeah. anti anti pandaism is, is simply unacceptable. <laughs> well, uh, I'm nervous about. I think most England fans are nervous about the Scotland game because I just think you'll be so up for it, and the, the the pressure on England is just different. Everyone wants us to lose, but everyone expects us to win. So you you, you don't get any joy out of it. Then they're horrible, yeah. nerve wracking occasions. You're right, you're right. And in Scotland, we say up for it. You know, it's spelled, it's all one word, you know. <laughs> R-R-I-T, we're up for it. And, and up for it big time. So, do you know, actually, I, in some sense, I don't really care how Scotland doing the Euros. I'm just, as you can imagine, just over the moon that we managed to get there. And and probably like every Scotland fan, I've still got a sore foot from when I booted the sofa in the 90th minute when Serbia scored the equaliser. I mean, you could not have, and you could have written actually, you know, that that was exactly what was scripted to happen, but it just made the victory even better. So, oh yeah, I I genuinely can't wait. I think it's going to give the country a lift. I mean, football football does that. I mean, we talk about the negative and you, you and I have spoken a bit about that, but the positive is it just brings an entire country when the national team is playing, brings an entire country together, lifts the spirits. Uh, and in Scotland's case, frankly, it doesn't really matter how we do it. Well, talking of bringing people together and making people feel good about where they're from, I, I think in politics, it's always good to, it's always reassuring when people have friends across political, constitutional party lines. And Anna Sawas, the new leader of Scottish Labour, you and he get on. In fact, you you were, you won a joint award at the Holyrood Awards a couple of years ago, and you were very gracious when he won the Scottish Labour leadership. I, I, I like seeing stuff like that. I think, you know what, for all the harsh contentions of politics, it's always nice when people can get on across the divide. And I think we do it probably more than people realise. So i tell you one thing, Matt, is, is social media is horrible, right? It's a toxic, toxic place, and and... and you know, the more I think about it, okay, I, I really need it. And, and, and you know, for for elections, and we're very much a digital election at the moment, we can't knock as many doors because we've got to be restricted uh, due to COVID in terms of numbers, blah, blah, blah. But I genuinely think to myself that I think after the election, although I'll keep my social media, I'll probably just ask my office to manage it because it, it, it's not just kind of crippling for your mental health at times, and I get abuse every day. It's, it actually begins to affect you as an individual. And I actually, yeah, I like it in us. Uh, I disagree with him deeply about quite a, a number of things and we'll have those debates and arguments. But he's not the only one. There's quite a few that I I, I actually quite like and agree with, uh, and they may be from different political parties. But their online personas, and I suspect my online persona, is not a particularly nice one because you've got to try to make your very smart-ass point 
you know, uh, against the against the opposition in, in 280 characters or whatever it is uh, on, on, on Twitter. And it's a nasty place. So, no, Anas, look, I, 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 fair play to Anas. He has, uh, I think, in, in, in the last few weeks, since the short election campaign started, I think he's, he's done himself well. Um, in fairness, we're judging him on a very low bar compared to Richard Leonard. Um, you know, it's not hard to be a better communicator than, than, than Richard Leonard, but he, he, he is. Um, but... What's interesting is it isn't translating into the polls for for for, for Anas yet. I'm still less than two weeks to go, but uh, definitely, I mean, you know, if we're re-elected as a government and he's in opposition, and I think he's got a great chance of overtaking the Tories, that if they are in opposition in any way, shape, or form, Anas will be the one for us to watch. There's no doubt about it. He's really talented. Um, uh, just on social media, it's such a good point that I mean, Twitter especially is a cesspit. But you kind of hinted at it there. Do you think it makes you behave in a way that you don't like in yourself? Because sometimes I think this, I think, I go back over old tweets sometimes, or something gets retweeted, I think, God, that makes me sound like an absolute dick. Why did I write that? And I think <laughs> we've all kind of, we all go, oh, Twitter's awful, like it's nothing to do with this. But also, I think we all have to accept, sometimes it brings out something in us as individuals we don't like either. You know, what would people think of us if they saw our tweets? Yeah, exactly. I I, I don't like what it does to me at all. Uh, and, and you're right. I look at my own tweets and go, what a smart ass. <laughs> Honestly, like, why did you tweet that? Oh, you thought you were, you know, you're making, you think you're making a really clever debating point just for a few retweets. And, and you just think, actually, you just sound like a, an absolute arse. <laughs> I don't, no, I don't. I, I, I don't enjoy it. Actually, I really don't. I mean, not all social media platforms. I don't. I don't mind Instagram so much. It's quite. It's actually what Twitter used to be. If you remember back in the day, you just you'd post a, a picture of your tea on Twitter, and, and people would say, "Oh, yeah, 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 your uh, Noki looks pretty decent, or your cheese Square sausage, and toast. yeah, looks looks pretty good, mate. Where did you get that munchie box from? You know, whatever it was that you tweeted." Uh, and people would have a good kind of laugh about it. And even, actually, even debating, talk about that um, piece of legislation, the Offensive Behaviour of Football Act, I mean, hugely controversial. Um, but I, I remember I was a backbencher at the time, and I used to engage a lot on Twitter with people who would argue, you know, how they thought it was a terrible piece of legislation. And a lot of folk would say to me, look, I really appreciate the fact that you replied. You know, it's really good. You know, I don't agree with you. Still think you're a bit of a whatever, but actually, you know, deep fair play to you. Um, but it's not become that anymore. It is just so toxic and as I say for your mental health but you're right I mean I, no, I, I don't like what it does to me personally so I think after the election I'm pretty set in my mind that I'll, I'm just going to take a, a bit of a step back uh, from it. You mentioned the abuse you get on there do you get a lot of racist abuse? Yeah racist Islamophobic but also ju- just abuse like I mean often people ask me oh I saw I saw that racist and Islamophobic stuff and I say look that, that is horrible I mean, it's going to the very core of my identity but listen, being called a C-U-N-T or, uh, you know, an arsehole or whatever, I mean, that, that might not be racist, Islamophobic, but it's, it's not particularly nice. Like, I don't no, know. that's right. No, that's all right. That's no, that's no racist, you know. That's just being called a total div, you know. You're as thick as two planks, mate. Oh, man, that's, that's fine. You didn't say it was brown planks. You're, you're not a Muslim plank. You know, you're just a plank. <laughs> I mean, that, the, the abuse in whichever form it comes, frankly, is, you know, I wouldn't take it in the street, Matt. You know, if I'm walking down the street, and somebody shouted that to me, I'd probably, you know, say, look, what the hell are you playing at? But uh, it just wouldn't happen. I've been elected in politics for 10 years. And, I mean, very, very rarely in those 10 years have I had any physical confrontation in terms of abuse. I mean, at most, I've had somebody slam a door in my face and say, F off. That's that's the most, you know, on social media, it's every day. It's, it's, it's far worse than that. Well, that's a good thing, because I think sometimes... 
for a while, the whole theory was, oh, this just happens online. People wouldn't say it to your face. And then actually in the last couple of years, I thought, will that always hold, actually? If, if we make it okay to do this online, doesn't that then generate an atmosphere where people feel more emboldened and then they're more likely to do stuff in the street? But if that's not been your experience, I guess that's a positive thing. Yeah, not, not, not been my experience uh, thus far. And, and as I say, long uh, may it continue. But also social media is not the real world at all. If I was to go by my social, if I was to go by my Twitter account, I'm going to get humped in the election. The SNP is going to get thrashed in the election. And, you know, independence is finished. And I've been knocking doors. So we've been allowed to knock doors since uh, Monday past. So you can say for, for, for just shy of, of two weeks. And I've done three sessions a day, weekday. So we go out 12, 3 and 6. Uh, and on the weekends, we do a couple of sessions. So I'll do 11 o'clock uh, as we're recording on, on the Saturday with 11 o'clock and then, and then two. So, I mean, I, I've knocked a lot of doors, as many as I can in the last, as I say, kind of 12 odd days. And thank goodness, you know, for us, I mean, our support in the SNP is not just holding up, but, but I think it's growing. Um, and, and, and social media, the stuff that catches fire on social media just doesn't play on, 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 on the doorstep at all. So I think there's a, a danger for politicians to think that their social media bubble, their clever tweet that got them 50 retweets, you know, that's, that's a zinger that will win you the election. I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't work like that. No. So when you're, when you're out on the door now, how do you prioritise your time? Are you still just going door to door, trying to get data, or, or does Humza Yusuf go, right, I, I'm the Justice Secretary, I'm the candidate, it's better for me to talk to people who are already identified as SNP supporters and just make sure they turn out? But both, actually, in the beginning, what we did was went to our identified support. For, so, so I took my seat. We've got about 13,000 SNP identified supporters. That's from years of canvassing. So first thing I did was, look, let's go out to them and make sure they're solid. Because in the 2017 election, where we almost lost my constituency seat, the MPC, I mean, we were six, we won it by, I think, about 60-odd votes. We went, to, we went to our supporters in 2017, uh, and we could see that they were shifting towards Corbyn, shifting towards Labour Party at that time. Um so, so I wanted to make sure our support was solid. And in the first couple of days, it was very obvious our support's not going anywhere. It's really solid. And if anything, it's, it's, become, it's become stronger. Uh, and, and, and look, I'd love to say it's all because of what I've done locally and that plays a part, but it's Nicola Sturgeon whose who's, you know, leadership through the pandemic is, is shining through. Uh, so since then, after the first couple of days, I said, look, let's go, let's get that kind of 12,500, 13,000 supporters. Let's, let's grow that. Let's try to get another 500 can we get another thousand? Let's try. Let's try to do that, so that we're when it comes to getting out the vote on the day, we are you know maximising or growing that pool. So so now it's now now we're out actually just chapping every door, uh, and 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 it's great. The one thing I've noticed from the data, I was just looking at it last night, um, that we've inputted in the last kind of twelve days, is we're attracting an older voter that we we just have always struggled with. And, and, and that's got to, I think my theory anyway, is that that's got to have come from the fact they've been watching the COVID briefings, you know, every day in the living room, seeing Nicola gear us through the pandemic. And I think older people probably have been a bit more cautious. So I've been spending time watching what Nicola's saying. So it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And, and, and yeah, we just have always struggled with a particular demographic of voter, but, but I think they'll come to us in, in, in slightly larger numbers they have before. And what's the reaction like on the doorstep? Because... I'm still quite nervous, you know, when the door goes, even when it's the postman, I kind of keep my distance. I'm wary because of COVID. Are people nervous? <laughs> and would they be nervous anyway if you knocked on their door? Maybe that's not changed. Maybe people are always a bit scared. Justice Secretary's here. Watch what you say. Stop telling those jokes. I've been, I've been told. I've been told. I've got a policeman's knock, so that that might frighten them uh, anyway. Uh, no, nobody's come out with a two meter stick. And... <laughs> 
like quite the opposite. I was, I was, ner- I was nervous too. I was quite nervous. I was thinking, you know, will people just slam the doors? And we've had, we've had two negative reactions uh, to people saying, "Why are you knocking my door?" Uh, and that's out of hundreds, probably now thousands of doors that we've managed to chat. Um, and actually, quite the reverse. You can tell people have been starved of social interaction. Yeah. You know, folk, folk are wanting to talk to me for ages, and I don't mind it. Uh, but part of me sometimes is like, right, you told me you're a supporter, pal. I need to go, right? I've got a, a couple of, you know, quite a few doors, quite a street to get to. But, you know, they want to chat about, you know, the pandemic, you know, what's happening, what's the next steps, what's going to happen in the election. But I had one woman, and she was lovely um, in, in, in the south of my constituency. And, you know, sadly lost her, her husband. She told me a couple of years ago. But eventually I got her hist- family history all the way back to 1890. And I was like, I'm going to have to draw a line at 1890. Like, I can't, we can't go further back. So I felt really bad because she was very clearly very, very, very lonely. But I didn't say to her, look, when our office, when our office opens up, obviously closed due to COVID, but, you know, hopefully if I'm really to touch wood, the office opens up, I've said, look, come in for a cup of tea, a biscuit, a chat, and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, no, no, quite, quite the opposite. Folk are quite up for a chat, I think. Yeah, I hadn't considered that. I just thought everyone was going to be quite nervous and a bit... Some people might be offended if, if politicians come into their door. But this... In a way, is that the best conditions for canvassers? People are going to be letting the Jehovah's Witnesses aren't going to know what's with them if they go door knocking. People are going to be welcoming them in with open arms. Come in imagine. and tell me about the Lord. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Maybe I should try that tactic actually. It's the Jehovah's Witness here. You get better success rate of getting in. Yeah, yeah. No, I honestly think it's right. I mean, as I say, I've not had. We've had two negative reactions, but it's great. Yeah, people want to talk. I mean, if people want to talk to politicians, they'll talk to anybody. So no, nobody should be nervous about knocking the door, uh, really, if you if you want to talk to your neighbours. But uh, do so safely at a two-metre distance, of course, yada, yada, yada. You got elected really young. You've, 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 it feels like you've, you're in a really sweet spot because you've been around long enough to develop, I was going to say develop a personal brand, but you know what I mean? Like to, to get your name out there, to be, um, you know, to have experience and to be a, a, a national figure, but you're also still quite young. You got elected at a pretty young age. And I always think, you know, I got involved in politics quite young as well. And I think that people who get in politics younger kind of all have something in common. So what age did you start becoming politically aware and what made you choose the SNP? Yeah, that's a good question. 16 would be when I became politically aware. And I remember that uh, because, I mean, 9-11 was, was, was just the day that changed the world for everybody, but it also changed my world. And, and who could have thought, you know, a, a terrible tragedy thousands of miles away could have such an impact on a boy growing up in Glasgow. And I remember it very vividly because, you know, I was 16 in high school. And just as we've talked about, at the beginning of this podcast, you know, I would talk to my friends about all the things that a teenage boy would, and most of it was revolving in football and, and Celtic. But the day after 9-11, so I think 9-11, my memory says me correctly, it was on a Tuesday, but you know, I need to check. I think it was a Tuesday, and then I went to school the Wednesday morning. And you'd always go into your form class, your registration class first. I'd always sit next to the same two guys. And that morning, the two friends, without any maliciousness at all, started bombarding me with questions like, well, why do Muslims hate America? By the way, who did that? Uh, do you ever been, uh, you know, and, and then as the days went on and, and, and the news came out, they said, do you know anybody in the Taliban? And I mean, I'm a 60 year old guy. And, 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 and they're, honestly, they're not doing it with a hint of maliciousness. They're genuinely thinking, you're that color of skin. You're that religion, right? You're a Muslim. You know, I didn't talk much about it or whatever, but you know, we know, you're, you know he's a Muslim. Um, he's got to know the answers. 
And I just thought to myself, well, either I'm going to just ignore this or I've got to find out what the hell it is. So I started watching the news with my dad. You know, they used to watch the, the 10 o'clock news. Started watching that with dad. Started picking up newspapers. Um, you know, got involved in, in, in kind of, I would say, politics with a small p, not party politics, but, you know, the anti-war movement and, and uh, yeah, just community politics. And I remember, I remember there was a community meeting. You know, I said community meeting is strange. You just you didn't get this thing like that anymore. But some of the the elders, unfortunately, all 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 men, they kind of had this meeting uh, to decide what the reaction would be um, and to, to 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 the events of 9/11. And I was invited along because I was involved in quite a lot of youth work in the Muslim community from a young age. So a few of us young ones were allowed in. And I remember there was such a divide in the room. Like the elders wanted to say, like, bury our head in the sand, it'll all blow over, let's just keep our head down. And all those younger ones were like, this is a great opportunity. People think that our religion is this, and we've got an opportunity to say, actually, our religion is about community, it's about service, it's about reaching out, and it's the very opposite of, of what people think it is. Um, and I think ultimately we won the day, but um, no, that got that got me interested in in politics with, with a small p, and it just really, it just kind of, went on from there. And I remember, because 16, obviously that's the day, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling on, Matt, but that's the that's the age when you've got to choose what you're going to do in terms of university, if you want to go to university. And you had the UCAS form, or the UCAS form, as my dad used to call it. Yeah. Never, never, ever, to this day, we'll call it a UCAS form. One of my teachers um, called it an UCAS form. The UCAS form, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think you had something like five choices in the UCAS form. And, and, and the first four I put down for law, because look, as a young Asian boy, you could only ever be a doctor, a dentist, lawyer, accountant, or pharmacist, right? You had to be one of those five, right? Um, so I put down law for four of them, and I snuck in politics at Glasgow Uni, the bottom one. And I got into law and politics, uh, law and politics, got two, two, two at my five, or three at my five or something. And it was the scariest conversation I ever had to have with my parents. I remember I, was, I had a bit of paper, and, and I was shaking, honestly, I was like that. And I was going to go speak to my mum and dad, um, about about the fact that I wanted to do politics and not law, uh, but I have to say honestly, my parents were brilliant. Uh, they could not have been better. My dad, who's been my dad's been an SNP member since the seventies. In fact, my dad was the first uh, Asian member of the SNP in Glasgow. Joined in the nineteen seventies, so he was delighted. He was like, "No, you know, we need more people of our color." of our faith to be involved in politics in this country. Mum was a bit more apprehensive. She was like, it's your choice, son. <coughs> but it's your choice, son. It's your choice. Uh, but ultimately, she was great about it. Uh, and that was it. It just just spiralled from, from there. So it was kind of in the family already. It's not as if 9-11 happened and until then you were considering becoming a young conservative or something. It, it, <laughs> the kind of seeds of it might have been around and that just perhaps was a catalyst for you getting political. So fa fam family was split. I mean, mum was Labour through and through and through. Is uh, she still? Tony, no, no, after after the Iraq war. In fact, even just slightly before the Iraq, I mean, she never liked Tony Blair. She was a big fan of John Smith. Big, big fan of John Smith. Uh, and when he died in Tony Blair, she just never liked the the, the nick of him. Um, uh, and, you know, probably good reason, I would suggest. I don't know, maybe slightly different to, to your own persuasion, but good, good nick, I would suggest. Um, and, and, and so we'd have this bizarre thing where sometimes my mum would put the, the Labour poster on the downstairs window and Dad would put the SNP one in the upstairs and there was no no conflict at all. But Dad, Dad, Dad as I say, was the first uh, Glasgow Asian member of the SNP, as far as we know, anyway, joined in the 1970s. And just, he, he my dad actually was, it's funny, as an immigrant, he just assumed Scotland was independent. It was only when he was told they weren't independent, he thought, well, that's not right. So <laughs> decided to decided to join. So yeah, in some respects it was, um, well, it's not just political. My family, my mum in particular, 
was very, you know, I would say, you know, had, had a strong kind of social justice, you know, bone in her, in her body. And that, that, that really was passed on to all of us. My, you know, my mum, for example, one of my, my early memories growing up was my mum took uh, an estate agent to court because they didn't let her view a house because of the colour of her skin. So mum and dad tried to view the house <clears throat> in, in the area they live in, actually, or they live in. And they just could not, and it's, it's you know it's a plus plus suburbs, you know that they that, that we grew in and uh, grew up in in Newton Mearns and in, in, in East Renfrewshire, and um, they just couldn't get a viewing for this house, and they were told for weeks, all oh, the owners away on 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 holiday, and Mum just it was just non-aware. She's like it's been weeks, and so my dad, who's an accountant, uh, she asked him to get the white white secretary, white Scottish secretary, he's got to get to, to ask for an appointment. So mum phones up in the morning, no appointment. Dad's secretary phones up in the afternoon, gets an appointment the next day, you know, and mum's like, so they thought maybe that's fluke. So they tried it again with two different people. Same thing happened. So mum then took the, the estate agent to court uh, for racism, eventually won. Amazing. Uh, that, that, the agent, the Rob agency folded, collapsed, went into the ground, quite rightly so. And that was my mum that drove that, not my dad. And actually, in fact, if I remember your podcast correctly with Anas, you know, he credits a lot of his, his, his politics to his mum. And often people think of kind of, you know, Asian women, meek, submissive. I mean, <laughs> she come to my house, uh, and I suspect you come to Anna's house uh, with experience. You know, they are really, they've got a really, really strong sense of social justice, and, and they don't, you know, if anybody wrongs them, they they, they make sure that they, they get their their justice. And and, and that, yeah, that, that was for me, maybe dad was political with a, with a big P, but mum was certainly, you know, when it came to the rights and wrongs in society, she was not afraid of challenging it. The last few years, there's been a big discussion about racism within political parties. Obviously, Labour was investigated by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission for anti-Semitism. There's been talk about the Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, Islamophobia in the Labour Party, as you say, on Anas's episode. Just recently, Labour members were, were being racist towards him. Have you ever experienced racism in the SNP? No, not, not explicitly. Uh, but um, I think, again, if we went back to that social media element, there are people who identify with the Yes movement who will, will make remarks like, uh, will just ignore racism, so they won't be necessarily racist towards me, but just say, well, why are you, you know, why are you suggesting that structural racism exists in Scotland? Or what, why do I have to apologise for the empire? Well, I didn't ask you to apologise for the empire, I just asked you to recognise the fact that Glasgow is the second city of the empire and you can't absolve yourself simply because we say we're all Jock Thompson's bairns, you know? So I, I've not experienced it. And, and actually, Anis's experience of... Um, racism within his own party after he'd lost the leadership against Richard Leonard for me actually was quite a seminal moment um, I, I actually feel quite ashamed of the fact that when I first got elected I probably went out of my way not to deal with issues around race because I didn't want to be that guy I don't want to be the brown guy who just talked about brown politics and I probably overcompensated a lot uh, for that uh, and actually I feel quite ashamed about it when I think about it now uh, I, I'm in Anis's uh, racism happened from his own party during that leadership campaign. I remember phoning him the very day. I remember exactly where I was. I was in Coven campaigning and I phoned him uh, and I said, look, I'm going to stand with you 100% of the way. This isn't about me, um, you know, but but you've got my support every single step of the way. And, you know, you've called out in your own party uh, and that takes, frankly, takes cojones and um, you've got my support all the way. So I've not experienced it from people in my own party, but I don't doubt that Racism, Islamophobia 
exists, you know, within the within within you know all sections all sections of society, including you know the yes movement, uh, as much as it might do in, in, in other sections of society too. It's a difficult position when you reflect on that about not wanting to be that guy talking about race, but then. The danger with that is, is that white politicians will go, it's not for me either. You know, I I don't feel like I can talk about the black experience or the brown experience or the Muslim experience. And then it it must be so difficult for you because it is in many ways, it's, you know, it's affected your life in really profound ways and it still affects our society. You're best qualified to talk about it. But of course, you know, that... (laughs) an enviable position of it kind of falls to you but it kind of shouldn't yeah yeah exactly that i think i think actually you need to embrace it Uh, and and that's the mistake i think i made when i first got elected Uh, look you live and you learn on these things but i I just think i I tried to just go right and and there was another actually ethnic minority msp when i was first elected a guy called hanzala malik for, for for labor and he did a lot of that and i thought you know what i'll leave him to do that and i've got a lot of other stuff to kind of deal with um, but but no, you've got to speak to your experience because you're right. Nobody is better qualified, and and, and sometimes it's really uncomfortable. But I, I mean, I remember doing the making a speech during the the the, the debate we had in Parliament. It would have been um, in summer uh, last year during the Black Lives Matters movement after the George killing of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, and um, I think Anna's spoken as well. So we've both spoken that as, as the only two ethnic minorities, um, and. You know, I, I I kind of gave a, a lot of uncomfortable truths even to my own colleagues about the fact that the public sector, you know, that we have presided over for 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 fourteen years at that time, thirteen years, um, was simply not representative enough of the people uh, that we do represent. And you know that the amount of abuse I've got for that one speech from people um, for saying, you know, look at him, you know, he spits out the word white when I mentioned, you know, every single judge in the country is white, every single chief, you know, the chief constable is white, his DCCs, his deputy chief constables are white, his ACCs are white, every single, you know, uh, you know, Lord Advocate that we've ever had has been white, every solicitor, I made the point that look, in a country that's meant to be representative, the most senior positions are all filled by people who are white and none by ethnic minorities in the way that we'd wanted to. And the amount of hatred that caused from people who said, you know, you spit the word out white, you know, you can't stand being in a white country. And I'm saying, if that bit of, un- that kernel of truth upsets you that much, imagine being my colour when the first thing you see about me is my colour. And whether you like it or not, you judge me based on that. Whether you like it or not, unconscious or conscious, you make a judgment. And when you hear my name, you make a judgment. And I've been held back for years, I'm certain, from various positions or, you know, whatever it is. And, 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 and look, I'm in a very privileged position, but there's people, you know, of my colour, of my faith, that have been held back their entire lives because of that. At the very least, if I'm being kind, unconscious bias that exists. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's one more powerful position in Scotland that you didn't list that has always been held by a white person, and that's the First Minister. Is that yeah. something that you think might change in the, in the coming years? I don't think Anna will win ever. So. <laughs> no, look, people, people ask me that all the time. Should I say, honestly, especially having seen what Nicola's gone through, I'm calling her Nicola, usually I defer to as First Minister, but I'm talking, to, talking about her as, as a human being. And, and, you know, I've known Nicola for years and years. In fact, my dad's office, the accountant's office I mentioned, that was probably, that was her first election base, the basement of that office. So I've known her for, for, for years. And having seen the toll the last 12 months have taken on her, not just the pandemic, but primarily the pandemic, but also, of course, all the whole sort of affair with, with the Alex Salmon stuff. Um, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Now, of course, in the future, if the opportunity comes up, you know, it's like being in a football team, you know, if you're asked to be the captain, you don't, you don't, you don't step down. But there's, you know, first of all, I, I say this genuinely, I mean, you know, politicians, you know, feign modesty at times, but genuinely, there is nobody that is as good as Nicholas. I mean, she is just head and shoulders. I mean, we've got a lot of talent in the party. We talk about Kate Forbes, uh, you know, in, in, in particular. But, you know, we've got a lot of talent. And you've had Angus Robertson on. I'm, I'm sure he's going to be in the Scottish Parliament. Uh, I, I really, hope, really hope so. I mean, a huge talent in our party. Um, you know, Ian Blackford. You've got, you've got massive amount of talent in, in, in the party. I can go on. There's, there's loads of it. But with all due respect to all of my colleagues, and I include myself in that bracket, we're not even close to being as good as Nicola is. So she's going to lead us to, to independence. Once independence is here, and if she decides to chuck it in and it's opportunities, then of course we'll take a call at that point. But it's just not even in, in, my, in my frame. But you know, to, to go back to your question, I would love to see a person of colour as First Minister. And that should be the ambition that we have. It shouldn't even be a question about, you know, is that possible? Um, you know, I think we should be saying no, you know, without even questioning that. I would love to see a person of colour as First Minister in the future. You mentioned the Alex Salmond thing. I don't want to go into the details of that. How difficult has that been for the SNP as a, not just as a party, but for those of you that know him, that, that know him and Nicola Sturgeon and other people involved? Do you think the party, and, and particularly for people like you that, that have known both of them and that are close, do you think you've fully processed it all or is this still kind of going on? No, no, we haven't. We've not been allowed to because the pandemic has just consumed us. Uh, but it's been, look, it's been horrible, obviously, primarily for the women involved. There's just no, no getting away from that. Look, Alex Salmond is not guilty of any crime and, you know, he's been judged by his peers uh, and, and, of course, found, uh, you know, being acquitted of, 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 of all criminal charges. But clearly, during that trial, he admitted to, to, to some inappropriate behaviour, to put it uh, mildly. And it's not that I looked at Alex Salmon as any moral compass, never. No, that, that's not the point. But the fact that since then, he's frankly engaged in a campaign that has been so obviously directed towards the First Minister, towards, again, you know, Nicola personally. It's been, I mean, saddening. It's been really upsetting because, you know, they could have done our, 
our cause a hell of a lot of damage. It still might do our, our cause a lot of damage. Um, now, the fact that Nicola has done so well during the pandemic, I think people you know, look at that and judge her on that as opposed to the Alex Salmon stuff. And, and, and again, having knocked the doors, I mean, no, the Glasgow anyway, in the south side of Glasgow, where I've been chapping doors, Alex is not a popular chap, you know, uh, and his party isn't going to pick up masses of votes in, in, in Glasgow, I suspect. I'd be amazed if they came anywhere close to getting a seat uh, in, 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 in Glasgow. So, no, uh, look, we've not processed it, but it has been... Uh, deeply upsetting on a personal level, on a human level. Um, but you've got to just deal with that. And, and and look, ultimately, we, as a government, you know, forget the personal human level, as a government, we failed, you know, two women, at least, um, that we know about. And we've just got to make sure, whatever the result of the election is next time around, that that just does not happen again. You were a minister under him when he was first minister. I mean, did you ever have concerns about his behaviour? Nicola Sturgeon said she... They may have become inured to his behaviour. As a member of his government, albeit a junior member, did you ever think, oh, I don't like the way he talks to people or anything like that? Do you know, again, I, I would agree with Nicholas' comments. I mean, certainly on, you know, never never any hint of the, the inappropriate sexual behaviour, of course. Uh, you know, if we, we had that, then we would have done something about that. But, but you know, he was kind of like the Alex Ferguson, you know, of, or you, you just expect, you not only expected the hairdryer treatment, if you didn't get the hairdryer treatment, you thought, maybe I'm not quite... You know, maybe I'm not in the not not part of the A squad. You know, why am I, why am I not getting the hairdryer treatment here? Because he must he must not really care that much. Um, and so you know, I, I was in the receiving end of it. You know, a couple of times. Um, but that, 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 I mean, that was about the brunt of it that I ever saw. Um, although I worked under Alex Salmond, as you say, as a minister, um, you know, relatively junior minister, I had the, the external affairs and international development portfolio. It wasn't one where I was in front of the first minister every week by any stretch of imagination. You know, I was kind of left to to get on with my my, my, my devices and sell Scotland across the world, which was a great, great job that, that I had at the time. But, uh, you know, it didn't require me to have to be, you know, I was not a cabinet. Uh, I was a junior minister and, and, and not in front of Alex very often. So, so no, you know, I think maybe we did become a bit, um, maybe sensitised to, to, to the hairdryer treatment side of things. But, um, yeah, you know, you look back at that and think maybe you know should we have should we actually have been immune to it? Should we have put our head above the parapet and spoken out about it and said actually the way you talk to us is 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 not is not acceptable? Well, that's it because even though you're your MSPs, your your ministers, you're part of a government, you're still human beings. You still have rights at work. You still shouldn't be made to feel small. I mean, not that anyone out there is ever going to weep for the politicians, but politicians are people and they they do have hopes and fears, and some of them are you know, deal with, react to that sort of thing differently. And it's still a workplace and there should still be standards. Um, I, I wonder, has Nicola Sturgeon ever given you the hairdryer treatment? No, 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 I'd say never. Uh, but first of all, your proposition that politicians are human beings is going to be a tough sell. But I mean, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I go with the hypothesis, uh, no, no, she's a totally different character, completely different. I mean, don't get me wrong, we, we, we all lose our temper. I mean, tell me one person that doesn't lose their temper in a high-profile, uh, you know, in any sorry, any high-pressure pressure position. And even if you're not in a particularly high-pressure position, if you're having a tough day, you probably lose your rag at some point. So I don't doubt Nicola has lost her rag on occasion. But you know, n- n- you know, she's a completely different character. Nicola uses humour more uh, to, to, I think, just uh, she's quite sarky actually at times. You know, as <laughs> you get you get to know her. You know, she can be pretty sarky and, uh, you know, you go, okay, right, I get the point you're making. I'll, I'll, I'll go rectify it. Um, but no, she's, she's a totally different kettle of fish. And, and, and you know, you're, again, your proposition, 
ludicrous proposition that, that politicians are human beings. Uh, you know, does it does actually apply to Nicola? She she is very uh, human. It's fascinating because politicians have a kind of public and a private persona. Um, and 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 sometimes there was a time when Nicola they used to you know say oh Nicola's quite cold and a bit standoffish and I used to always just find that description really weird because although she might have come across like that and some sometimes in the public you know back in the day it couldn't be further from the truth from the Nicola that I know she is just one of the warmest people I've come across um, at a, a, again a human level you know and I've had difficult times in, in my life and I've been through a divorce and. You know, just generally difficult times in, in, in life, miscarriages recently uh, as well that I spoke about, and and she was great. You know, just a, a wonderful friend. In amid, in amongst everything else she had to deal with, takes the time to speak to you, to make sure you're okay, give you a hug, you know, and just checking in you. And and no, she's she's great. I'm falling over her because she is genuinely a, a friend. I, I, I see her obviously as first minister, and I, I give her the, the the absolute due deference that that position uh, holds. But but you know, she's ultimately a a very good friend. I don't think I've ever asked a guest this before, but I think because we started talking about football, it, it's kind of occurred to me because in football, people talk about, you know, people don't talk about their feelings often enough and footballers are expected to just do the job all the time and perform at a high level, regardless of what's going on. And there might not be a lot of public sympathy for individuals who are lucky enough to, to apply their trade in that way. I think just talking about the things you talked about there, suffering a miscarriage, going through divorces, how hard is it to maintain that professional political persona that you need. You know, politicians have to be professional. People also want a bit of the personal, but people judge politicians hardly, harshly if they fall below a perceived standard. How hard is it to do the job of a cabinet-level minister when you are dealing with personal trauma? So... I'm not sure how much of a tongue I've got left having bitten it so often in, 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 in the past, because you do have to, you know, you, yeah, there was a politician that, you know, I can't remember who it was now, said they've got a, a kind of list in their drawer that when they when when, when they get uh, demitted from office, then then, then they're going to tell people where to go. Um, I've not got that list quite, uh, but, but you know, you do you do have to bite your tongue because people will often twist what you have to say or, or hold you up to an incredibly high standard <clears throat> when you are human. Um, do you know, I think it's I think it's got a little bit easier though. I do think politicians uh, and people generally of, of of a high public profile can now talk about things a lot more than perhaps they would have been able to previously. And I spoke about I just mentioned miscarriages. Uh, you know, me and my wife have unfortunately suffered four uh, in, in recent years, and um, oh man, I, I I couldn't talk about them when they first happened, and and this actually is almost the very opposite of what you're suggesting because. There's actually sometimes a pressure for politicians that if you've got mental health issues or you've gone through something that you've got to go and speak about it, you know. And and, and I see I see why people put that onto people of high profile or politicians because you know it's good to talk about these things. But when we first suffered our our, our very first miscarriage, I mean, I was actually our second one was the worst for me. I mean, I was devastated, and it's taken me what three three and a half years to speak about it. You know, uh, and, and Mandy Rhodes was great, you know, from, from Hollywood Magazine. She was, you know, she made it a very easy interview uh, to, to do with me and my wife. But, um, you know, it was it, actually sometimes the pressure is you, sh- you should speak about it. You must. You've got to. It was actually for me, there's no way I could have spoken about the miscarriages when they first happened. Even now, I'm actually feeling a bit kind of emotional just even thinking about it because it's still, I think, something I've, I've not properly processed. Oh, man. I mean, it was just... 
It's hard enough to hear it from anyone. I, I just, but it's interesting that you put it that way. That actually, with politicians, you are expected to talk about your private grief and things that's happened, and, and in a way, that's quite. It, that pressure comes from a positive place. Is that people say, "Well, you're the people that speak about stuff," and if you talk about it, that helps me understand it. No, absolutely, exactly. But that doesn't that. stop the pressure, you know, being an unwelcome no, added thing. I think also in Scotland, it's incredibly hard to keep things private. Really, really hard to keep things private. Um, you know, people know things and they talk to others. And yeah, word gets around really, really quickly. You know, no, nobody was ever going to out the fact that I had a miscarriage. But it was just, you know, there was a yeah, maybe a pressure there, I think, to speak about these things. But, but you know, I, I do think there's good that comes out of it. And the minute, me and my wife did that article. My wife is... My wife is phenomenal. You're better interviewing her, actually. She's much more, much more impressive than I am. I mean, she has led, she has taken that grief and, and started a campaign about uh, miscarriage awareness. Uh, her and another MSP called Shona Robinson, uh, MSP. Uh, and actually, they've got, it in the, they've got it in the SNP manifesto that, you know, emulate the New Zealand model, three days of annual leave, plus also better miscarriage care. So actually, by talking about it, they've managed to start a campaign completely independent of me. Uh, she's managed to do that. And, and uh, you know, she's 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 brilliant. So you, and, and interview her, if I'm, especially because mine will be a dud, right? Once you've overwritten mine. <laughs> Not at all. I would love to have her on. Um, just returning to Salmon for a second, on the politics of it, how difficult is it as a kind of attack message, I guess, to go, oh, this guy's beyond the pale. <laughs> don't listen to him, he's full of shit. <laughs> when he led the party for 20 years and, you know, quite recently. It must be quite a hard... I mean, obviously, what makes it easier is this is a new party, it's a fringe party. Nicola Sturgeon, as you said, is like the number one political brand in Scottish politics. Her polling is really strong. The party's polling is really strong. So I guess that makes it easier. But is there a sense that, let's say there's another independence referendum at some point in the re medium term that this guy's then going to be involved in it again in some way, and you spent a load of years saying, don't listen to him, he's full of shit, and then he's going to be on the same side as you in a, again in a couple of years. Yeah, you know, it's strange. I mean, the Alex Hammond I knew then, when I first got involved in politics, I, I don't feel as the man that, I, that I've gotten to know now, after everything that's happened. I just don't feel he's the same. It's, it's weird. It's almost, you know, it's just strange. It's, you just don't recognise the individual. Um because the individual I knew back then would, would not have done what he did to Nicola Sturgeon. And just would not have done that because of the damage it would have caused her on a personal human level, but also what it could have done to, to our movement. But I actually believe it or not, uh, it's your prerogative whether you believe it or not. Uh, I don't really talk about Alex Salmon on the doorstep. Uh, people do ask me about the both vote stuff. It does actually come up, you know, a, a fair bit amongst our own supporters. Uh, and you can see that because our list vote is, is a good kind of 10% below our, our constituency vote. So it does come up. Um, but actually, most of the people that I speak to want to probably give it to the Greens uh, as opposed to, to, to Alba. There's a few that want to give it to Alba. And, 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 and I, I can easily navigate the conversation without mentioning Alex. And it's not really, a, it's not actually about Alex. I mean, of course, the media narrative is about Alex. But it's about people thinking, well, I don't want to waste what's the what's called a list vote. So, so you know, how do you persuade me? And, 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 and you know, I get the message across. You know, we've got a majority in 2011. That was done through SNP 1 and 2. We lost it in 2016 because our list vote dropped. If you want to gamble on it, that's up to you, but you are gambling. 
here's what you do, one and two, and we'll get the majority. And Boris Johnson's terrified of that, and we'll get the referendum. Blah, blah, blah. And it tends to it tends to work. So I can navigate the conversation without actually bringing. I don't want to personalise about Alex, so I, I don't really need to bring Alex into it. The other element I should have mentioned at the start, actually, particularly talking about race and religion campaigning, is that you're having to campaign during Ramadan, which must just be, I mean, it's hard enough. Usually candidates lose weight during a by-election or something. Going out there, knocking doors, having to have like the, the, the cognitive capacity to make all these political arguments when you haven't eaten for a whole day must be so hard. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you can set your watch by it, right? When Ramadan starts, the Scottish heat wave starts. Guaranteed. <laughs> Guaranteed. Doesn't matter if Ramadan, because Ramadan moves every year. Ramadan goes back about 10 days every year because we follow a lunar calendar. So even if Ramadan is in the middle of winter, we'll have a freak, you know, heat wave in the middle of winter. And, and it's, I mean, it's, it's 21 degrees outside or 20 degrees outside today. It was 20 yesterday. Or Luckily, the Scottish heat wave only lasts for one day. <laughs> Listen, anything above 10 degrees just taps off, right? Tops come off at 10 degrees. And not only that, a third of my constituency is tenements. Thank you very much. So, you know, it, you know, it is knackering. Um, and I, I, I mean, it also slows you down, though. See, pre-Ramadan, the days before uh, and I was campaigning, we were, I was averaging about 17, 18,000 steps. Now it's slowed down to about 14, 13, 14,000 steps, which is still, you know, a fair chunk when you're not, you know, it's not, it's not actually the food, it's the, it's a lack of water. So, you know, you can't drink anything uh, from, from about half three in the morning, about half eight at night. And, and it's the water that gets to you because you're thirsty, you're talking, you're having so many conversations. It's the thirst. Um, and, and one of the other negatives about Ramadan in a campaign during COVID is that you end up wearing your face mask. And... I'm afraid to say by the middle of the day, your breath is honking. And it's great because the constituent isn't exposed to your Ramadan breath, but you are literally breathing in your own fumes. Uh, and it is, I mean, oh, I'm no. surprised I have not painted. I'm painting a very vivid picture. I hope you're, I hope you're getting it. But uh, yeah, so ra- ra- campaigning in Ramadan is, is, is tough. But you know what? And fair play again to... I feel like I'm talking about Anas a lot. I've just missed the, pod, the, the Anas Loving podcast. But fairness, <laughs> you know, Anas is, uh, you know, he's doing a leadership campaign. I think he's fasting. I was always impressed with Sadiq Khan. Sadiq Khan was fasting during the Brexit referendum and did a few TV debates. So I've actually told the party, I'll do all the media bids you want pre seven o'clock. You know, so I've done plenty. But anything after seven, my brain is complete mush. So, you know, just get somebody else to do it so they've been what a, great, what a great get out though what a great get- no i can't do questions on tonight oh it's that um yeah but it's not it's, it's march <laughs> it's not ramadan yet oh no it's that other it's the other festival the, the, the one <laughs> i haven't told you about yet um i'll just adopt a different religious festival yeah, i can't do weekends back. can't do weekends it's um it's, it's to do with my faith <laughs> i used I, we used to have a sikh friend in high school um used to have a sikh friend uh, and you know like most Sikhs, his surname was Singh's, so pretty obvious, and, he, and, and, and you know, he, he wore the turban, it was pretty obvious he was a Sikh. Um, but he used to take he used to eat off every year. Uh, and just he used to what, sorry? He used to take, from school, he used to take off Eid, uh, and the teachers wouldn't bat an eyelid because they wouldn't know any better. They would say, oh, Tony Singh's just doing Eid, like, with, you know, with Hamza and, you know, Omar and Abdullah, yeah, you know, it's fine. You know, he used to mark him off. And we used to try to get Diwali off. <laughs> we used to try to get Diwali off, it was brilliant. It used to work for a while until the teachers cottoned on. <laughs> That's not um, trying to get Glastonbury off. Yeah, 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 exactly. 
No, I can't. It's, it's tea in the park. It's tea in the park, miss. I can't come in. Very, very important festival on the calendar, miss. Tea in the park. Yeah. Well, it's Transmit now, isn't it? Is that in your constituency? Ah, bang. Yep, absolutely is. Yeah, summer sessions, um, which which you know causes me no end of, of headache among some of my local constituents. But because uh, the music's so loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. It's a it's a good thing to have in the constituency for sure. I just want to talk about a couple of things that um, about your brief as Justice Secretary, a couple of, because it feels like these debates are happening more in Scotland and particularly more in the SNP. Sure, sure. So the stuff around the Gender Recognition Act and the difference between sex and gender, and I don't want to go into the details of that because it's a really difficult area to go into and, you know, I wouldn't want to, you know, I just think you have to be really careful with your language about stuff like that. But I, I guess what I wanted to ask about is, it does feel like this is happening in the SNP more than it's happening in other parties. Is that just because you're the party of government, you're bringing this stuff forward and you're just ahead of the curve compared to Westminster and other places? Or, or are there other reasons for that? I'm truthfully not sure. It's a very, very good question. And I think you're I think your premise is absolutely spot on. I, I think it does It does seem like it's more acute both in Scotland, but also uh, within the SNP. I couldn't put my, and I've asked myself the question so many times, like why is it? I think part of it is of course, the function of being in government. You know, the function of the fact that we have a female leader, female first minister, and she's the one who's very vocal about the fact that, you know, trans rights are, are human rights. And actually they're not in conflict with rights of women. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, we can't divorce ourselves from the fact that it's a global conversation that's that's going on. Certainly in in in, in the West, I'm, I'm not. I don't know as much about whether it's happening uh, in other cultures, but certainly in the West, it's happening. But yeah, I, I cannot put my finger on, on on why. All I do know is that certainly in my time in politics, I cannot think of a more toxic debate where people have questioned each other's integrity, have questioned each other's morality have questioned, you know, the fact that you, you if you take one position or another, you either hate women or, or hate people who are trans. And you always get the extreme fringes in any debate. And you try to bring, you try to bring yourself into line with the mainstream. And I don't know if it's the advent of social media, but certainly the extremes on, on both sides of this debate seem to be the loudest. And yeah, I think it makes people petrified to even get involved in the discussion, the debate. Well, that's it, even with their friends, I think, so many people have kind of just shied away from even engaging with it about gender and sex and the difference between them and, and, and anything like that, because they think, oh God, you know, if I even think that, am I a transphobe or, or do I hate women or anything like that? I just think it's so, sadly, the way that it's been, and you're right, conducted on social media, I think, is quite repellent to just the lay person who, who, isn't, who hasn't thought about this before. But obviously this is a growing debate that the public are going to have to think about themselves as citizens um and do, do, do forgive me matt do you have young children or children no i don't know no 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 because i've got a stepdaughter who's 12 right so primary seven here in scotland and she just doesn't bat an eyelid about it you know she talks about uh i don't really know who they are but she talks about kind of social media influencer you know who, who goes by the pronouns they them she talks about them with such ease talks about gender with such ease and, and, and you know, just doesn't bat an eyelid about it. And, and so the reason why I was asking if you had children is, is, is I talked to some of my colleagues who've got children the same age. So I was talking to, to John Swinney, Deputy First Minister. He's got a, a, a young boy, you know, not far off the age of my stepdaughter. And yeah, same thing. It just doesn't, 
doesn't worry the purview. Uh, they, they're just so comfortable with the dynamics of transgender identity. But also, I must mean, my, my stepdaughter is, you know, a strong, strong feminist. And, you know, I've been alive for, for, for uh, just over four years. Um, and I'd love to take some credit for that, but it's my definitely my wife is 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 you know instilled that in her. So, yeah, I think it's a generational issue. And when I say that, I don't mean a much older generation than me. I think actually my generation and older there's an issue, but I actually think younger people are much more comfortable around this debate. And we touched on it earlier with like the Celtic Rangers Israel Palestine thing. The danger is that this then gets pushed through that lens of Rangers Celtic. Yes, no, leave, remain. Tory Labour, well, you know, whatever. And then it's like, oh, well, if you are on, if you're basically a leave voting, you know, no voting, you know, people end up taking a position on this through a flowchart of things that are completely unrelated to it. And it it becomes sort of tribal from the outset where people haven't even really thought about the issues at all. That's it. That's it. I mean, people view the entire world through their own prism. And if that prism is football or it's the issue around transgender identity, then yeah, everything else is coloured through that. And and it's just not the way human beings work. It's not the way life works. It's not the way people's principles work. But do you think, I mean, does it fall to you as Justice Secretary? or I guess it's the First Minister, really. With any government, it's the, it's the, (laughs) the person in charge. But do you think, now that the conversation's kind of happening, it feels like it's kind of out there and politicians don't want to fully engage with it for, for, for a lot of legitimate fears. But in a way now, the conversation is happening and it needs Nicola or you or the Prime Minister or whoever to go, right, the reason we're having this conversation is this, and these are concerns that people have that are legitimate concerns on both sides, and this is why we're having this conversation. It almost feels as if, though, the conversation is kind of out there in the wild and isn't being kind of corralled or regulated by people in charge. Yeah, I think think there's probably been an element of that. There was a really important moment, that was now a few months ago, where the First Minister did a quite unscripted video. Yes. Yeah, she just kind of got her mobile phone out and and said, you know, did a really strong defence of our trans community because of the bile that they were facing at that time um, from all quarters. And I thought that was a really important moment because I think it empowered probably a lot. I mean, I remember speaking to a lot of my colleagues, both ministers, but also backbenchers. And I think a lot of them were empowered after that to say, actually, you know, we've been feeling... Because the debate around, again, on the on the fringes and the extremes around the transgender identity issue, you know, some of the, the accusations levelled at our trans community, you know, are not dissimilar to what was levelled at the gay and lesbian community probably back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, maybe even you know, the 80s as well. Um, but there are also, as you rightly say, some very genuine concerns. I've had it on the doorstep. Some really, I mean, I was talking to a woman, she you know, told me she was a lesbian, she was a bit older. Um, you know, she said, look, I've been through homophobia for a lot of my life, um, but I'm genuinely worried, you know, what I hear some of on social media, it, it, does it erase me as a, uh, as, as, a as, as a lesbian? Uh, and I never really understood that phrase kind of raised me, but you know, I, I got to what she was she was talking about, uh, and it was coming from a really sincere place. And there was no again malice, and we talked through it. And at the end of it, she was like, "No, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense." So I think you're right. I think politicians certainly, you know, obviously we've had our mind occupied with with uh, COVID in the last twelve months. But I think when we come back into it, you know, we've promised, for example, to to bring forward reform and the Gender Reform Act. Um, but we should we absolutely should do that in a way that we can bring as many people together as possible. And that's not impossible. I mean, uh, you know, I'm almost dreading to mention the hate crime bill, but they got a bill that I introduced, you know, a year ago that 
every party opposed in the parliament, that minus the Greens. Greens. They really hated it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those Greens, honestly. Um, you know, so, so you know, most parties absolutely oppose it. We're going to vote against it, oppose it, da, da, da. And, and I tried my best, they don't, don't succeed entirely, but I tried my best to kind of make the tent as big as possible. You know, took a fair bit, made a fair, fair number of changes to the bill. And ultimately you get to a position where actually every party voted for it, minus the Conservatives. So I think you can do that in really difficult debates if you're willing to acknowledge, okay, there are genuine, sincere concerns and how do we address those? And with the hate crime bill, the, people's concerns seem to be that you might be arrested for making jokes in your own home. Yeah. Um, now, whether that was whether that would have ever been the case or not, you, you yeah, can, yeah. can enlighten us. Now, maybe I'm just too sympathetic to politicians, but I always think when you get governments that have been in power as long as the SNP have, sometimes, and it happens with every party, you you know you keep making laws. This is all done with the very best of intention. But when, once you get into like third, fourth, and you know fifth terms, you start legislating on stuff that perhaps you wouldn't have legislated on in your first term, and it's done with the best of intention. But you know you're in the habit of making laws, and perhaps sometimes you stray into areas that, on reflection, you go maybe maybe that looks authoritarian, and that wasn't our intention. Or am I being too sympathetic? Are you an authoritarian who wants to be able to stop us joking in our own homes, Hamza? I think at this point you should introduce a pause to your podcast so the viewer or the listener sorry, thinks that I've uh, cut you off <laughs> a, a, a good moment. No, 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 generally not uh, authoritarian to try to defend myself from being a, a dictator uh, for a minute. No, I think I think you're right, though, in, in terms of uh, almost a government psyche because, I mean, nobody batted an eyelid about the hate crime. The hate crime stuff that we've been doing has actually been going on for years, a good three, maybe no, not just shy of four years, but a good three years um, where the review took place by an independent judge. There was roadshows across the country. I met with the opposition. I met with the opposition a good three or four times. They were perfectly happy with the, the hate crime bill that I was introduced before introduction. All fine. And then it gets introduced. And actually the failure from the government and, and me, my, my, my personal failure on, on, on that bill was I should have my political antennae, you know, I'm relatively you now experienced, you know, 10 years in politics. I should have I should have seen what was going to be a red rag to a bull, and I should have just dealt with that at the pass. Whereas actually, I think I, I spent a, a bit of time in the first few months of that bill being introduced, trying to dig my heels in and say it, because I knew the effect was not what people were saying. I knew it wasn't the dinner room. I could say, look, the threshold is so high. This is not about your drunk uncle on a Christmas you know, after a few eggnogs saying something about immigrants, you know, Schrodinger's immigrants both taking the jobs and also taking all the benefits, right? It's not it's not about that, you know, um, or saying that he's not going to call Caitlyn Jenner a woman. You know, it wasn't about that. It was about, it was about the Tommy Robinsons intentionally stirring up hatred against Muslims, against Jews, against whoever else. That's what it was always about. But it doesn't matter what I said in that space. The narrative was already uh, against us. And I, and I should have, and I reflect a lot on the hate crime bill, and you've got to, you've got to accept where you don't get it right. And, and in the beginning, uh, I didn't get it right and, and should have dealt with it. But I hope through the process of the bill, where we got to a position where every party, as I say, minus the Conservatives voted for it. And by the way, it's come up probably in all the doors I've not in the last kind of yeah, 12, 13, just come up maybe two, three times. And again, genuine interest from people, not a slamming the door in your face that hate crime bill was terrible, um, but actually genuinely asking about. Mm. So, yeah, no, definitely a lot of learning to go, but no, not not an authoritarian government. I, I love this one-party state accusation we get, you know, the only one-party state that's a minority government, you know, that gets our first minister in front of committee 
for eight hours being grilled and nobody gets sent to the gulag, you know, so. Yeah, also, I think I don't like that sort of thing because the public choose who they want to elect them. It's up to your opponents to come up with better ideas and better politicians if they don't want to live in a country where the SNP is so popular. The system exists to allow that. No. So not only do we have to do well as the government, apparently we've got to try to help the opposition to do their job. Yeah. Well, the danger is the longer you're in government, that's that's where the opposition comes from. Is that yeah, yeah, the opposition does come from within? You got to watch the guys back. Yeah. Uh, Hamza, I should let you go because we should let people know we're recording this very early on a Saturday. I say very early. We started at half nine in the morning. Listen, so for, hope- Ra- for Ramadan, that is that's practically half four in the morning. Basically, you've got me up. You know, I had to get up at half three to drink uh, drink my 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 one and a half liters of water. Uh, and that means, of course, I had to get up at half four, half five and half six uh, during the night uh, as well. So, yeah, no, it's early and I've got a camping session, I think, as you're about to allude to in about 20 odd minutes. So, you know, pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, it, how are you going to get there? You're going to be getting there on foot? Are you going to are you going to drive? Are you going to drive your friend's car or are you going to get drive? No, no. <laughs> Dude, I just thought we got we almost got through the entire podcast without Transport Minister Insurance getting anywhere near it. What a bat... No, I can't swear, it's Ramadan. Oh, you can't. <laughs> no, Sorry. not just Ramadan. But if I could, if it wasn't Ramadan, you'd be... No, I'll tell you what. That day will live with me forever. I will... N- I mean, there is nobody, Matt, in this country that checks their insurance documents more than I do. Whenever I go for a renewal, I don't just double-check that. I mean, I, f- I'm, I probably check the insurance documents every month just to... Do- just to double check, you know, God, I, that day still gives me palpitations when I found out. Oh, jeez. I'm sorry. It was a cheap. It was a cheap. Yeah. Well, what happened? God, it was dreadful. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it came out of kind of relatively difficult circumstances. So I, I got divorced. I alluded to that at the time. It was not something I'd spoken about publicly. But, um, you know, as anybody who's ever gone through a divorce, maybe listening, uh, you kind of transfer your assets and your you know various bits of paperwork to sign. And essentially, I had comprehensive insurance, which allowed me to drive other cars with the owner's permission. Um, and I thought I'd, I'd transferred over that insurance uh, at a post-divorce, but I hadn't uh, done it. I hadn't completed the, the very last form that needed completing. It was entirely my fault, nobody else's fault. Um, and yeah, I was dri- driving uh, driving a car that wasn't mine, but my, my friend's car. It was uh, with with uh, their permission. And uh, yeah, got uh, pulled over, and the coppers were just checking, just doing our kind of roadside check here, and what's your name and you know are you insured and they did the check and said it doesn't look like you're insured to drive that and I said, don't be silly <laughs> transport minister yeah that's <laughs> and uh they said no look we're really sorry and and, and look go away and check it was late at night go go away and check and of course i went home and and it, uh, i mean I, I checked and it was very obvious once i'd done the check that there was this piece of paper um this document that was that hadn't been i hadn't sent away and signed um, and I was mortified, uh, absolutely mortified. I mean, I mean, didn't sleep a wink. I remember I te- I've never ever talked about this actually. I spoke, I text Nicola at uh, like six in the morning, just saying, just call me whenever you're awake. Can you falsify some documents for me, please? <laughs> Can you falsify? Yeah, uh, maybe I'm a justice secretary. No, I, I actually, I actually, uh, and I don't think again I've ever spoken about this, but I mean, I actually said to look if you want me to resign, not don't 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 think twice about it. Take absolutely take it for the team. Because, you know, I can see the embarrassment it would cause the government, you know, the headlines write itself. Uh, and I said to him, I'm not, I'm not interested in bringing the government into any disrepute. Uh, 
whatsoever. And in fairness to Nicola, she was good. I mean, she said, look, let's... I'm not saying that isn't going to have to be the case, but let, let, just explain to me what happened. So I talked to her through, gave her the much more, the, the kind of longer version of, of, of the abridged version I've given you. And she said, look, it's an honest mistake. It's genuine, honest. You didn't go out of your way to try to, you know, save yourself 50 quid in your, your RAC car insurance. You know, you're a genuine mistake here and, and came out of difficult circumstances. So you go out there and you tell the truth. You know, you're not talked about your devote. You're going to have to talk about that. You know, you're going to have to mention the reasons why in the context. And let's see how the opposition react. And in fairness to the opposition, you know, I remember Jackson Carlo, and again, in fairness to him, um, you know, he came out and said, look, it's a pretty easy mistake to make. Uh, you know, he's apologised and that's the end of that. Uh, and, and I probably breathed the, the biggest sigh of relief. Probably the closest I ever came to hugging a Tory uh, <laughs> when, uh, was when Jackson Carlo said that. But my goodness, it was it was one hell of an episode. And you can imagine the ready I still get for that. I still get uh, taking the task over that one, not just by social media users that have uh, lots of numbers in their accounts, uh, but but also uh, my friends still very regularly. Uh, my wife, yeah, my, even my, my sister, actually. Yeah, no, it, it does come up, even on the doorstep, the odd occasion. <laughs> it comes up uh, as well. So, God, that is a day I will never want to relive. It's just so funny that you were transport secretary of all the briefs you could have had. All the briefs, Matt. <laughs> All the briefs I could have had. Um, so no, I, I I check my insurance documents more, more more than anybody else in the country ever has and ever will do. Hamza, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. A real Cheers. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Well, there you go, Hamza Youssef. It's so good I got him at the start of the day because imagine how exhausting he must be. Come the end of the day, if you've not eaten or, or drank all day and you've had to be out there on the knocker, on your best behaviour, being sharp, being lucid. So I'm very grateful that uh, that he came on during an election campaign and during Ramadan. And the main thing I take away from it is I think it's so easy, and I talk about this with guests obviously frequently, to look at politics. And it's not just about social media. When you see leaders' debates and things, I think, oh, man, you know, this is... I find it stressful if it's too confrontational. I really don't like it. I don't mind people being robust and clear and direct and passionate um, and occasionally angry if it's justified. But it's so reassuring when you talk to people. And I think Scottish politics can can sometimes look like the sharpest, the most severe place. So it's just so nice to talk to someone who (laughs) doesn't mind paying a compliment to someone they disagree with and could talk about how they get on with people from other parties. You think, oh, there is hope for us all because it's never as um, bad, I hope, as as it appears uh, on telly. And I obviously have personal experience in that, um, making this show and, and going to events and, and meeting politicians of all parties. It, it always just lowers your anxiety levels a bit. So it was a really timely, candid, brilliant conversation. And he's obviously able to laugh about... Is uh, is uh, punishment for 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 driving without um, uh, driving without insurance? Um, but I mean, what what's really good about that? I think as well is is the, how we talked about Jackson Carlo's response because you're like, if you were call if you if you were going to really call for someone's resignation over that, that would feel a bit harsh. So, and politicians are people, and they occasionally make mistakes, and they shouldn't all, of course, result in in resignation. But it was just such a great conversation. And first thing on a Saturday as well, um, it must be an election campaign. Um, so hopefully you are registered to vote. If you've got a postal vote, by the way, you can pop it in to your um, 
polling station, or if you're in Scotland, polling place uh, on, on polling day. Um, I posted mine the other day. Um, it's the first time I've had a postal vote. And um, it felt weird not going into a booth and doing it. But it's quite nice being able to vote at home. It's kind of like a luxury experience, like a VIP experience. I was like, oh, I can sit at a desk, have a cup of tea and do it. Obviously, you don't want to spill anything on it. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the great thrill of voting, which, if you live in the UK, will be happening. You will be open to you for some office or another on May the 6th. Um, so hopefully you're registered. I shall leave you now to get on with your week. Thank you for downloading this. If you could leave a review. Uh, on Acast, on iTunes, wherever you listen to this. It just helps other people find it. And of course, I make this purely out of passion. I just love making it. But if as many people can hear it as possible, then that's uh, that can that if you I know sometimes people get in touch and they say, oh, I want to thank the show somehow, particularly at the start of lockdown, just sharing it and spreading the word is is good enough. Oh, and buying tickets to the live shows, which are very exciting. Um 24th, 25th of May and the 2nd of June in the West End. Peter Mandelson, Saeed Devarsi, Keir Starmer, Andrea Ledsom, Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. Six amazing guests, three wonderful nights, one man who won't shut up about it. Until now, I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.